Welcome to the Coffee with Kareem podcast. I am your host, Kareem Sirajuddin. Today's show is a recording of an interview I had with the Boys in the Cave podcast. Some really nice brothers out in Australia talk about the field of psychology, secular and sacred knowledge, comparing Islamic psychological concepts with Western psychology, as well as unpacking a bit more notions of depression and happiness and how to have well-being in your life. Don't forget to show the Boys in the Cave some love, check out their show, leave them a review. And thank you for listening and subscribing to the Coffee with Kareem podcast. Special thanks and love to my patrons. Join our Patreon community today at patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem and support this show. Please leave this podcast a review on iTunes to help us get more exposure. And if you're looking for personal or relationship counsel, please visit newhumanconsulting.com to live happily with harmony using techniques from psychology and Islamic spiritual values. Thanks again for tuning in to the Coffee with Kareem podcast. My name is Tanzim, and today we have a very special guest with us. His name is Kareem Sarajuddin, founder of New Human Consulting. He has completed his BA in Psychology and Religion, followed by MA in East-West Psychology with a specialization in spiritual counseling. He is a certified life and relationship coach with years of teaching and community outreach experience. And also on top of all of this, he has started his own podcast show called Coffee with Kareem. And he's also based out in California. So, assalamu alaikum, Kareem, and welcome to Boys in the Cave. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. I like the furniture in this cave. It's nice. <laughs> Great to hear. We know that you being, you know, in the field of psychology, this um, particular field is a growing field, even amongst the Muslim community. So, I just wanted to kind of insights into what made you want to undertake psychology in underground and to continue it as like as a profession. Sure. Well, I, I've um, I've always enjoyed people, and um, I'm a people's person, and learning about different people and cultures. And I had a pretty, mashallah, diverse upbringing. So my parents were immigrants, and we moved to Mass. They came to Massachusetts, and I was born there. Um, I went to Roman Catholic school when I was young. The first time I made official dawah was when I was seven years old. Uh, in a classroom with uh, a nun, as it, my nun was a teacher, Sister Mary Julia, God rest her soul. Um, and then later I moved to a predominantly Jewish town where I also, you know, interacted with all kinds of, of people there. So at age 16, when I took psychology as an elective in high school, I, I, I knew that's what I wanted to study. Um, and alhamdulillah, as soon as I began university, I already knew what I wanted to do. You know, sometimes we're undeclared for the first three years, <laughs> but that wasn't my situation. Um, and then I double majored and uh, also did comparative religion. Um, and also, alhamdulillah, had the opportunity, even as an undergraduate, to do teaching assistantships for professors, um, especially when it came to Islam and uh, the human and social sciences of the Middle East uh, and understanding the culture that was happening there. Um, and 9-11 uh, actually happened when I was an undergraduate, and that was in Boston. So it was actually right near where these planes went out. Um, it was next to the airport. So there's just been a lot of themes in my life that I feel there's there's been a calling for understanding people, bridging communities, um, and 
multicultural sensitivity, so to speak. Yeah, subhanAllah. Um, I guess you mentioned the starting point of giving dawah and, you know, when you were young. And actually, subhanAllah, I was listening to podcasts by the Mad Mamluks and people can check that out, inshallah. And they talked about some people, you know, they also... Um, they get flustered by the encounter of a maybe a non-Muslim and they have like a religious dialogue. It kind of puts them away because they don't know them uh, enough. So what happens, that becomes a trigger to know more about the deen, even though they're not practicing Muslims as such. And alhamdulillah, like that becomes the starting journey of actually learning the deen and then, you know, having that certainty later on in their life. So I guess, would you say that's a, um, that was a starting or a trigger point for you? I could definitely relate to that um, for sure. And also in regards to, you know, your journey through psychology, suddenly now you're kind of doing your own podcast as well. And subhanAllah, you know, even I, I'm listening to on a regular basis, alhamdulillah, and I'm based out in uh, Sydney, Australia. And what I want to know is what made you want to start a podcast after you're, you know, doing all this stuff, you know, through psychology and doing stuff in the community? Well, first of all, thank you for listening to the Coffee with Cream podcast. I think you could be doing better things with your time. <laughs> but um, the, yeah, the intention for that show was I've, alhamdulillah, but had given the opportunity and the blessing to work um, exclusively with Muslims. That was my intention because I knew that, you know, when it comes to um, our other brothers and sisters in humanity, uh, they have, mashallah, many clinicians and therapists and counselors and coaches serving them, and we didn't. So my focus was was about serving the Muslims, and that, of course, took a long time uh, to get to where I am today um, because there is that stigma around mental health or psychology. Everyone just thinks about Freud. So after accumulating many years of, of educational, you know, um, coursework that I developed and taught on the ground and, and alhamdulillah have had the opportunity to work with over a thousand Muslim clients in the last seven years, I decided, you know, I find that I've, you know, obviously I have a lot of frameworks and concepts that, have been systematized in the work that I do with with people, with couples, with families. And I thought the podcast would be a great way to share some of those insights with everybody, as well as, you know, bring awareness to the Muslim and um, American society of all the wonderful things and gifts that Muslims uh, are doing out there. So it's also a great way for me to just harness the network I've built over the years and get those people on to talk about what they're doing to make America better and uh, to improve the Muslim community wherever they are. Yeah, I can relate to that a lot in the sense that, you know, me and my, you know, the other boys in the cave members, um, when we wanted to start this podcast, we realized that, you know, for the age we're at, because I'm 20, and we're having these kind of deep questions, you know, deep um, discussions, and, and it wasn't kind of, we felt like it was going to waste or just having that conversation, that's it. We feel like more people should benefit from it. So we felt like even a podcast would get that kind of idea across. And, you know, once you kind of promote it on your you know, personal social media, for example, people might tune in and actually, inshallah, benefit from it. And even me talking to you right now, it makes uh, we even um, the boys in the cave, we learn more from getting all these um, – guests from you know different fields and areas of study to talk about their experiences as well and that kind of opens up a new kind of dimension and world for us that inshallah like we can benefit from it and my people that i know can benefit and even the audience that listens to our podcasts can benefit from it benefit from it, inshallah so i hope you're getting that kind of you know um, um 
response from your own audience and who's tuning in to your podcast as well. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. And I'm a, I'm a subscriber of Boys in the Cave as well. So, um, alhamdulillah. <laughs> last, last show I heard, I think, was a couple of weeks ago on the – I think you had a sister on. You guys were discussing Orientalism and Occidentalism. Yeah, um, yeah. the Aura, great guest. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, mashallah. So keep up the good work. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Yeah, like that's the other thing where we feel like since we're in Australia, it's, um, you know, all the kind of big podcasts or even the Muslim podcasts, they're out in America and Canada and out that way. And it's really filtered. Like I grew up listening to all the kind of Dao material that's in America, right? And there's nothing really here in Australia, even though the Shuyuk and the, there's, um, you know, scholars around, like, I mean, uh, got, I'm in contact with them but there's no kind of platform to get their ideas across and you know their names to be heard by people overseas you know so i feel like inshallah like i guess the goals that we've set for each other um for our own kind of podcast and it, we reach it in uh, one day alhamdulillah but um mashallah. in regards to you know what I do want to delve into is the whole kind of secular field of psychology and also um, Islamic psychology because we know we have that spirituality, you know, pr- um, practicing Islam. But in regards to um, psych- the field of psychology, um, I feel like it, it kind of connects with the Islamic tradition. And um, because, you know, the field of psychology kind of from what I my limited um, knowledge of it, it kind of deals with the observable for example you know studying the brain or our actions for example but you know comparing it to you know islam we know there's things that we can't see and things like the consciousness for example like the fitra and the nafs for example we have to deal with um concepts concepts that are obviously not dealt with in um, secular psychology and do you feel like from your studies there's big overlaps between the um islamic spirituality side of things and secular psychology or do you think there's more differences than there are commonalities yeah that's a great question um first of all let me just define psychology you know simply uh it's the study of the self and that includes mental processes emotional responses and behavioral patterns and certainly when you think about islam as a tradition islam is meant to be a guidance for whom for humankind, right? Um, and so if, a, if something is supposed to guide humanity, it has to also understand the way the self works. So it's, I feel like religion in a way um, is, it's about psychology, sociology, and anthropology, because it includes all these things. It includes how to help and improve the collective as well as the individual. So from that aspect, sure, there's they have commonalities in that they're trying to understand the human being and, um, and, and how to improve in, in well-being. Now, where it does get you know, tricky or different, and I think it's becoming more so in the last you know, um, 10 years, but I, I certainly saw it as an undergraduate as well, um, where the constructs of what it means to be human is being structured by individuals or or thinkers that don't necessarily um, consider what we may call spirituality or the soul or revealed um, revelation and religion, right? So already that's going to be... um, a major difference because if we have a science of you know psychology 
that tells us this is healthy, this is unhealthy, this is pathology, this isn't. But who's actually coming up with those definitions and that meaning? It's, it's somebody else, right? And if it's not being inspired or guided or checked by what we consider to be true, i.e. Islam and, and what the Quran and Sunnah you know, ha- have demonstrated, then you're going you're gonna to face a lot of difficulties. And this is something I find with, let's say, Muslim clients I've worked with. Like a Muslim has a pornography addiction. When they go see a therapist that's you know, covered by their health insurance, 90% of the time, the therapist tells them this is healthy, this is fine. As long as you're not spending money, as long as it's not sabotaging your job, you know, you're still going home for dinner, then what's the big deal? with watching pornography. It's a natural part of being human, right? We have desires, you want to fulfill them. What's what's the problem? And f- obviously for a lot of Muslims, that's not going to fly. So even though both Islamic psychology um, and psychology are about understanding the human being, the self, and improving the self, the standards of that Definitely, there are some major differences, but that doesn't mean that there isn't um, overlapping uh, concepts or techniques as well. That's actually something I do want to delve deep into, but the whole essence of, you know, you just mentioned the idea of the soul and stuff. Do you feel like from the kind of secular psychology angle that they only portray the human being as just, you know, purely material working machine like they just look at it just a physical structure and we just need to fix you up and you know and the brain is just you know neurons moving around and because we know through the islamic conception there's the fitra the nafs desires that we have to fight with and whatnot so do you feel like from the secular side this it's just purely we're just like a physical being well that is more so the direction it's going but you do have of course schools of thought in western psychology such as jungian psychology or transpersonal psychology um, which is more of of what i specialize in transpersonal or humanistic or existential um, where it does consider um other aspects of the human condition, like the spirit or archetypes or these types of things that you find in, in religion and uh, these types of expressions, if you will, of, of, of consciousness that humans have uh, demonstrated throughout the centuries. But now, of course, there is a um, greater uh, academic and even political agenda to make psychology more of a quote-unquote hard science or a medical science. And so we're seeing a lot more advancement in neurology, which is great. Um, but you also have, of course, your worldview is going to influence your instrumentation and conceptualization of science and of psychology. So for instance, if we don't believe that there is a soul anymore, which is pretty common in in the West, Western academia, we're going to start to now assume that consciousness is rooted in neurology. But this is one of the hard problems of science today is the problem of, of consciousness. We can't justify or fully explain what consciousness is yet. And we certainly don't have enough um, causal data from neural, neural processes to validate any of those claims that consciousness is rooted in the brain. That's one of the problems is there's nothing, there's no part in the brain that we know of yet that is actually responsible for the brain to execute and do everything that it does. It just does what it does. Right? So for example, if I move my hand up and down, there's a signal 
from my brain going through my nervous system that is telling my hand to go up and down. It's happening extremely fast. But what's making my brain send the signal? There's, there's nothing in the brain that makes it do what it does. And so that's one of the mysteries of, of consciousness, for example. And from an Islamic perspective, you know, we hold that, yes, there is, a, as Aristotle put it, a ghost in the machine. Um, we're not just, you know, this p- complex package of, of neurons and, and biochemical processes, and that's it. Um, there's, there's certainly more to us than that. And this aspect of ourselves has to also be nourished um, and fed just like your physical body. And if it's not, it will impact the physical body. So um, I don't know if I answered your question or I veered off too far, but I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, like it's basically how you mentioned the whole idea of consciousness and, you know, science is yet to kind of prove it. But you brought up the idea of um, in psychology, different schools of thought. It reminds me, if there's like, is there like a Hanafi psychology, Maliki psychology? Is that how it is in that whole school uh, field of psychology? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but this is what you find in in many sciences, right? I mean, you have, for example, different theories or approaches of physics, you know, and psychology, certainly you have that as well. So you have what's called behaviorist psychology, which focuses more on stimuli and conditioning uh, and behavioral responses. You have psychoanalytical, which is known to be attributed to Freud, um, which is about analyzing the past in order to understand the the present. Um, You have cognitive, which focuses more so on the mental processes. So you do have different schools of thought. Some of them build off of each other. Some of them are extensions of others. Some of them kind of rebuilt a a new architecture from the beginning. Um, Carl Jung, for example, who's, you know, famous for Jungian psychology and archetypal psychology, he was actually a student of Freud. And then he broke away from the school of thought that Freud had established and and started his own school of psychology, which is interesting. But more importantly, what we have to, I think, uh, you know, what I want to bring up here is that what we call the mind today is actually a modern construct. And there's a very dense book called God Machine, um, which actually talks about the Western historical evolution of how the soul in their worldview became the mind. It was a modern construct to replace the idea of, of, you know, um, losing the soul, so to speak, because as we know, in, in Western history, you had the enlightenment and the Renaissance and, and different, um, uh, evolution, if you will, of of thought. And that included breaking away from many religious constructs and developing a more positivist or empirical outlook of the world. And so as a result of that, they dismissed the soul um, and replaced it with this idea of the mind. So oftentimes when Westerners talk about the mind, it's it's very similar to what, you know, people in the East perhaps would still maintain as the soul, because that's exactly what it is. You know, it's it's that part of us that you can't quite narrow down in physical, uh, or you can't peg it in, in only physical processes, yet there is this um, transcendent aspect to it. Like, where is the mind? You know, it's not in the brain. And even in Western psychology, they believe in ghaibi things, unseen things. For example, the unconscious. The unconscious, by definition, is something you don't have direct access to, yet it influences your your awareness. Just like the unseen realm that Allah created, does, you don't have direct access to it, but it actually influences the seen world, you see. So there are a lot of concepts there that 
aren't even quote unquote empirically validated. Um, and uh, it, it's just interesting how, you know, some Western psychology has seen itself as really breaking away from all this stuff when um, some of the central concepts that are carried, like psychoanalysis and, and uh, this idea of an ego or a superego or your your instincts, many of these things you could um, trace back how it evolved in the first place. Yeah, that reminds me how you're saying through the different schools, you know, they're trying to explain things like through the mind and kind of getting rid of the idea of the soul. And how it reminds me of, um, I don't know if you've heard about Sam Harris, um, Sam Harris um, and uh, was a Russell Brand, they had a dialogue. And because, you know, he, he's a more atheist line of thinking, so he had kind of explained away the idea of consciousness through just physical processes. Or oh, that's what I kind of took away from it. So I feel like there's that kind of distinction that since you can't see, as you just explained, the uh, unseen, you just have to kind of, you're left to kind of explain away on a physical kind of level. And I guess that's where people like in secular society and even through atheistic frame of mind tend to go down that route. Whereas us Muslims, that's why this, I guess that's why you're in the psychology field because, you know, we know Islamically it's not the case and it's about connecting the dots through the Islamic tradition with the kind of current psycho, um, psychology through the secular lens. Correct. Yep. Absolutely. That's a good example. I'm a subscriber to Sam Harris as well <laughs> on his podcast. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, they just have some very fascinating discussions. And it's like, he's a perfect example of, you know, when you have a particular worldview, it's going to influence the possibilities and outcomes and instrumentation of that science. So for Sam Harris, consciousness can be explained you know, through neuroscience. It just hasn't been yet, but that's his his motive. And he's also gone to such an extent where he's one of the, you know, um, uh, proposal, uh, excuse me, he's one of the individuals who really pushes this idea of there is no such thing as free will. Because again, if you reduce all intentionality to neural circuitry, which you don't even have control over, then is there actually free will? And that's another big debate that has has been forged in you know the human and philosophical sciences today subhanallah i guess that's where the direction is going with that kind of a foundation you know alhamdulillah i guess you know because we have you know islam so we have that moral found um you know we have that kind of objective morality or that sense of who we are as a human being whereas these guys are just discovering and they, they don't know and you know this that's why there's so much dialogue and debate about all of these things because we're going through our mindset of looking through things through only a purely materialistic lens and there has to be a sense of element of rationality that needs to be applied because as you just said you know it's scary to think that there's no free will right there has to be something in the unseen to at least give us a sense of control over our physical processes at this moment. Like, for example, um, I wrote this in my Twitter account a while back, but, you know, the atheists uh, in this, probably the wrong direction is going towards a podcast. But I'll just give this quick example where, you know, in um, studies, like, for example, engineering, they only study, you know, how motors work and all that, but you don't because you're studying physical processes, it doesn't mean there's someone who created the motor in the first place, right? So I feel like that's these kind of studies are leaning towards that because you only see the physical processes, you neglect the whole idea of what created in the first place, like a motor, because once you study a motor, you don't, you're not in the mindset of thinking, oh, how did that person 
create that motor in the first place. You're only studying what it does. You, so I think that's the same thing can be right. kind of line of thing can be applied to modern psychology, for example, and even, you know, how we view the world, you know, and that's why people lean towards saying that there's no God, subhanAllah. So I guess what I do want to touch on is the idea of spirituality um, that is utilized in modern psychology because you said there are kind of different schools of thought in that regard. And do you feel like of something for, you know, meditation it may assist or that a way of making someone go towards, I guess, being happy? Because from I actually watched an interview of some psychologist and she's a Muslim and she mentioned that when she, you know, finished her degree and started working in a hospital as a psychologist, what happened was um, there was a strict rule in place in a hospital there that you can't really discuss the ideas of spirituality or even religion with your patients. You know, you just have to go purely on the kind of um, methodological sense of the current, you know, secular psychology and how they go about things. So do you feel like that's what you've encountered possibly? Possibly, or is it just a product of the different kind of schools of psychology? Uh, yes and no. Um, there, that definitely does exist. And there are people who, when they study psychology and or work in a clinic, for instance, they are told exactly the same thing because there are these legal protocols now um, and political agendas which influence how we help people in the field of psychology and, and human science, right? So... Um, it's not uncommon to, to hear that. Um, there are many situations like that where people were told, like, don't talk about the soul, don't talk about this, don't use that. Um, so that does that is certainly a, a barrier that that some people have encountered. And what's interesting is you'll you'll meet you know psychologists that have faith and psychologists that don't like anything. Even people that don't believe in God, like Sam Harris, you know, I, I would say he would describe himself as a spiritual person. I mean, he wrote books on this and talks about meditation extensively. Um, so it's interesting because even though we don't want to accept this idea of a creator, um, and again, it also depends on what kind of God you're talking about, because I'm definitely an atheist when it comes to certain gods or conceptions of God, right? Obviously, we don't believe in some bearded man in the sky or some spaghetti monster, but that's not, the, I don't think that has anything to do with what Islam talks about theologically as far as the uncaused cause of, of everything. Um, it's a very different idea than some anthropomorphic, you know, figure in, in, in the clouds. Um, but even people who are atheists can still consider themselves, of course, moral or spiritual, it's just going to have a different flavor or a different uh, procedure, if you will, like meditation. And what's that really about? It's about clearing your mind from all the chatter and becoming a lot more aware of the essence of yourself. And this part of you that is what they call the self of no self. Um, in other words, the essential life force that is generating your consciousness and isn't uh, cluttered with all the egoic identity and detachments. So that's, for example, you know, one example of how a person who doesn't believe in God or religion still finds spirituality through a practice like meditation, for instance. Okay, so you would say that it basically um, varies from person to person who you talk to in the psychology field where they may implement something like um, meditation as a way of, you know, gaining that inner peace that they seek. Because um, I guess 
from my kind of what I'm seeing or observing in the field of psychology is that we're leaning more towards, you know, if someone goes and visits the psychologist, for example, you know, they either take medication or just do treatment. So it's more like a physical kind of thing they have to undergo, whereas the kind of, you know, the idea of seeking spirituality through, you know, meditating or praying, for example, is kind of neglected. Do you think the field of um, psychology is leaning more towards it or as you um, explained, because of the different kind of schools of thought and kind of different faith groups that are involved in the field of psychology that you get kind of a different approach from person to person? Yeah, you you definitely get different approaches from person to person. But I would say that the dominant ideology in academia um, and these major psychological associations like the APA, the American Psychological and Psychiatric Associations, they are influenced by this dominant ideology, which is not very interested or compelled by religion and, and spirituality. Now, of course, you do have aspects, uh, departments, like I know that the APA, I saw an article in this last year, which was talking about how they want to increase in their multicultural psychology sensitivity and, you know, learning about how psychology is practiced in India or in Egypt and these types of things and seeing how there could be a benefit to that, right? So you do have, of course, people that are trying to be more open um, and understanding different alternatives. But there's, of course, the dominant ideology, which is, I think, what really matters, because when you go study any field, you're going to come out with the, the ideas of the dominant ideology and agenda. So that is, unfortunately, the case when it comes to the field of psychology. And, and some Muslims that I've met who have their degrees in psychology and are clinicians, they think like a non-Muslim when it comes to understanding the human being and because that's what they were taught. Um, so if they're not grounded in Islamic precepts and Ayn nafs for example, this, the, the science of the self in, in Islamic tradition, there's going to be a lot of things they're going to accept as valid or true, um, even though it may not be. Right. SubhanAllah, I guess, yeah, that's the kind of danger of not having those kind of basic elements of Islam. You know, if, if you haven't learned it, then you delve into these kind of fields of study and you don't know where you're going because you're just kind of following the herd, I guess. Because even from, you know, studying a degree, it could be any degree, what you're doing, you just force fed a field of study where you don't actually learn, the unless you do like a proper, you know, PhD in it, for example, but you just take in what you taught and you don't get to question it too much. And that's the scary thing where you don't have the Islamic kind of foundations. You don't, you, you might go to places like, you know, might reject Allah, you know, subhanAllah. So I guess it's really important to have that um, kind of foundation of Islam when you delve into these um, sciences. Like, do you feel that's the case? Yes. And I would say more so for liberal arts, you know, if you study philosophy or psychology, these types of things, not to say that you're not going to benefit from those degrees, but if you don't have a grounding in the Islamic worldview, you can be influenced or conditioned um, in, in very intellectually and spiritually harmful ways. Okay. Yep. In regards to, you just mentioned about different fields of studies, and I wanted to delve into the idea of 
depression because it is, you know, such a prevalent thing in today's society. What is depression from a secular perspective and the Islamic perspective? And also, like, is there some special Islamic remedy to cure this? Or is it a mixture of utilizing the secular psychology and mixing it in with, you know, the Islamic side of things? That's a good question. So, I mean, I think the first thing I want to clarify is, you know, when we say what's the secular perspective, what's the Islamic perspective, let's back up a second and just say, look, there's knowledge and science. And in my opinion, knowledge and science are both obviously tools and indications of the great architect of the universe, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so when you study anything, you're actually learning about the nature of the world, especially when you study things like science or physics, um, hard sciences, for example. Now, how much of that is Islamic or not Islamic has to do with what is it that you're studying or what idea or what outcome or what evidence. So to say like, oh, there's an Islamic perspective on depression versus a secular perspective, I don't think that distinction is um, the right way to frame the question. Whatever is Islamic is always going to be whatever has been established, you know, to the best of our knowledge through science as well, right? Um, Because that is exactly what everybody uses to understand the nature of things. Um, But but yes, things can be influenced um, based on your worldview. I don't deny that. So those of us who don't know, depression is when you have a perpetual uh, state of sadness um, amongst other symptoms like lethargy or lack of motivation and other things. But it's basically when you're in a very low mood um, a lot. And it, it, it's to such an extent that it causes dysfunction, like you don't go to your job for two months or, you know, you don't you don't talk or eat or sleep, etc. So depression is can be caused by an internal uh, reality, i.e. negative thinking. Um, depression can also be caused by an external factor, like some kind of major event happened, like a trauma or the loss of a loved one. And it can be caused by what you may say is physiological or biochemical. In other words, let's say an individual has a lack of producing dopamines and serotonin, um, which are responsible for, you know, positive moods. It's an, it's naturally produced in the body. So depression generally falls under these three categories, at least according to my understanding. And the first two are things that you can work through. Um, I think anybody can work through, right? Um, feeling depressed because you lost somebody you loved is a natural thing and you're supposed to go through that. It's also called grief, you know, um, but it, you're going to recalibrate and find that homeostasis again. Um, if you feel depressed all the time because you have a depressive or negative way of thinking constantly, then the way to heal that would be through, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, of course, you know, spiritual uh, psychology and clarity, you know, things like zikra and, and um, you know, recalibrating the concepts of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in your life and what the Quran teaches us about the human experience. These are all things that can help alleviate somebody from depression. But when you have something that's biochemical, for example, that requires now more hands-on medical treatment. Sometimes depression is caused also by, by a really bad diet. 
you know, if you eat McDonald's every day for for 30 years straight, of course you're not going to feel good or have energy or positive moods because you're not giving your body any live food, for instance, right? So there's, those are, I think, the, the three basic ways you can understand what is depression. On this idea of happiness, you know, living happily, I, I personally don't believe that we're supposed to be happy all the time. Um, I think it's actually ridiculous to try to be happy all the time. And by happiness, we're talking about a, you know, a high aroused state of joy and uh, positivity. Um, and some people are like that, mashallah, and good for them. That's great. But I think we have to step back and ask ourselves, why do we all want to be happy all the time? Because that's not full living. Life is never going to be this perfect stream of bliss and predictability. You're going to get curveballs. You're going to have tests and tribulations. You're going to have hardships. Things don't always go according to plan. People let you down. We all know this. And so life is going to have a spectrum of emotions like sadness, like anxiety, like stress, like joy, like happiness, like hope, etc. And I think that the true question is, how do I find greater tranquility? and contentment through the ups and downs of life because that's the case for everybody it's going you're going to have ups and downs yeah like in regards to touching the idea of you know being depressed or sad for example and i you can take it like in both ways where there's a non-muslim there's a muslim and i guess through the if the muslim is kind of practicing and whatnot he understands the whole idea of possibly being sad and even looking through the stories in the Quran and you know the prophets going through certain hardships and can understand that okay this is from you know possibly a test from Allah whereas you know from a kind of non-Muslim perspective it's like their premise is the whole idea of you know here I need um, things right here right now and then I guess when they set that benchmark if they fall short they get depressed I guess it's like a kind of Thing the benchmark that since because they set that benchmark and they fall short, it, it causes problems and it's kind of like a self-induced kind of sadness. And then, do you feel like those kind of people, you know, that are sad in that through um, the that specific kind of instance, you know, they visit the psychologist and they expect that okay, there's some remedy or some treatment or some pills. Um, it may kind of aid them, or is it because you have to as a psychologist kind of delve into their kind of, you know, family or life or their past history, for example, or how they think as a human being? Do you feel like these are the kind of the approaches that are taken by um, modern psychologists? Because even, you know, yourself being a Muslim, this kind of approach would be very resonant with the, would resonate with the Islamic tradition. Whereas do you feel like even, you know, a non-Muslim, like even, for example, maybe Sam Harris was a psychologist and would he take the same approach that kind of um, you would or is it kind of it as you might boil down to uh, it depends on the person itself it definitely depends on the person you know going back to the three categories of what can cause depression now how islamic psychology would add an extra layer to that is okay let's say i find out you're depressed because you have a lot of negative thinking patterns for instance you have what they call all or nothing thinking. It either has to be, per everything has to be perfect or else it's, it's you're not going to do it. Or, you know, I have to be a perfect Muslim or I'm not going to be a Muslim at all. I have to do this perfectly or I'm not going to do it at all. So that can cause a lot of setbacks in your life. You, another way of negative thinking is 
you know, everything is a catastrophic thinking. You're always assuming the worst case scenario, right? Um, Or negative self-labeling, having this inner critic where you always put yourself down or you take on the labels and criticisms of people as, you know, absolutely true. So when you approach, let's say, a person who's not using faith or iman as part of their um, treatment, they're, of course, going to work with the negative thinking and help you, you know, journal that and replace it with positive and balanced thinking and use evidence and understand the situation and all these types of things. And that's what any Muslim psychologist should do as well. But the supplemental dimension, which I think can enhance in the progress and healing more deeply, in my opinion, is part of your, you know, thinking and um, improvement of your negative thinking will include, of course, the constructs of the Quran um, and the Sunnah. So, for instance, if I'm so you know down because I didn't get the job that I wanted, well, not only you know do I have to be more positive and think about how I got to keep applying and networking and all these great tools, but for example, as a Muslim, I also have to remember that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is the provider, and that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala will open doors from places you never expected if you maintain that consciousness and you keep taking the means. This is a supplemental value or, or cushion, if you will, for your consciousness that's going to, I think, um, it, you know, offer more to, to get over, let's say, negative thinking. And this, of course, includes purification of the heart and, and the practices and tools that Islam offers around nourishing the heart because, as you know, the heart influences the way we think as well. Right. So I think that, you know, Islamic approach to something like this would include all this other supplemental knowledge and tools that you're not necessarily going to find um, in the same way uh, if you go get treated for negative thinking um, with a CBT therapist. You know, they're, they're not going to have that extra layer, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Like um, this reminds me of, I think I read about this. It's called, I think it's in psychology. It's like Beck's um, cognitive model of depression where it's like you constantly, if your mindset is about negative thinking, you'll fall into further depression because of that trigger of the initial kind of uh, instance or situation that caused you to have that initial period of depression where if you can't, you know, have more of a negative thinking to go along with it and you live your life kind of towards that um, line of thinking, you'll you'll fall into more kind of um, depression. It's like a cyclical kind of nature. So I guess through the Quran and Sunnah, you know, we, we are taught these um, ideas of hope and being, you know, grateful, you know, for the blessings that we have um, and all these things that kind of influences and shapes how we should kind of approach life. And I feel like that's the most powerful thing about Islam that, you know, for certain people they may experience, you know, not severe kind of depression, but even mild kind of depression where things don't go their way. And, you know, you know, Rasul Sassam went through probably the biggest, most hardships out of anyone in the face of the earth, right? And... We have that example, and I guess sometimes we forget that, you know, because we have the deen, but we forget that the, you know, our prophet basically went through all this hardship to be where we are, you know, as human beings today. So we can seek this kind of, um, seek knowledge. It pushes us to have this thing, because as you said um, earlier, like, because you know, we have Islam that kind of made you want to go towards the psychology line of thinking because, as you said, like people like Sam Harris, they have this kind of ideology of, you know, no um, free will. And we know that 
Islam being the truth that's like, no, like, this is how we should approach psychology, including also obviously um, all the like all the studies that we do. Like for example, you just mentioned you know eating McDonald's all the time, you know that will cause some sort of depression possibly. So it's about combining the knowledge, and I feel like that was a very important point that you made earlier. That it's not because even I, I admit, like I tend to kind of fall into that line of thinking that you said, you know, if you're really into the dean, you're just like. Whatever is from the secular, <laughs> You're gonna be if you like, you yeah. have the Islam versus secular West kind of thing, line of thinking, but it's about reading into the literature and reading into that and taking out the benefits and the actual proper, you know, uh, studies and combining it with what we have and about, and it's about just um, gaining knowledge. And I think that's a really um, important point that you um, brought up earlier. And what I also want to kind of delve into is the idea of, you know, how much of a sense of taking care of yourself in terms of physical self and well-being, um, how much of an importance does that play in the role of, you know, avoiding depression and I guess being happy? Like how much should we um, prioritize kind of a balanced diet or a healthy lifestyle? Is it as important as we think it is? Or is it like we are not up to the mark, for example, even as, you know, um, most Muslims, like, I guess, uh, most Muslims tend to, you know, be a bit more lazy, um, as probably the previous kind of generations that came before Mm -hmm. us. Um, Do you feel like these kind of contribute to the idea of, you know, depression rising, even in Muslim countries, for example? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I want to come back to that because there was another point I wanted to make on on the previous topic, which is that, you know, yes, I think as Muslims, we should not have this disdain towards, quote unquote, secular knowledge or science, right? Um, and that, oh, it has to be cloaked in Islamic terminology for it to mean anything. I think that's absurd. And that's part of the reason why many of our countries look the way they do to be honest, um, because we just, we don't see it like that, you know, that it's all beneficial knowledge. Um, and on the other hand, you know, we Muslims also can't just think that, oh, as long as I'm practicing Islam, that's it. I don't need anything else. And I've had people say this to me, like, oh, brother, you don't need psychology. You just need the Quran and Sunnah. I'm like, well, the Quran and Sunnah is what taught me that we need psychology. And in, in fact, the Quran is, has a lot of psychology in it because it's about this human being. Right. The human being's well-being. So, you know, we this idea of Islam as a way of life, um, I think that has to be further qualified in that Islam offers us a tool kit for how to be most successful in this life and the next life. But that doesn't mean that Islam, quote unquote, has all the answers. Right. There's nothing in the Quran and Sunnah that tells you how to do heart transplant surgery or how to build a bridge, right? Or how to purify water or, 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 or these types of things, right? So, but if you're a really good Muslim, in my opinion, you're going to be ignited to seek the knowledge and the procedures to solve these problems in your society and in your area, right? And that's what made the Islamic civilizations um, prosper and be that beacon of knowledge and light for, for centuries, Right, as you well know. How did they do that? They didn't do that by saying, hey, we're not, we don't care about what the Chinese, the Indians, the Greeks, the Persians, the Egyptians, everyone before us had said. We're just going to do our own thing. No, that's not what they did. So I think we have to recognize that Islam, in my opinion, 
actually tells you to go seek knowledge and not just religious knowledge, so to speak, right? But all knowledge that will benefit because the greatest scholars of Islam that I'm sure you admire are not ones that only knew one subject. They're the ones that they were the polymaths. They were the Renaissance men and women that understood medicine, astronomy, you know, physics, Islamic spirituality, fiqh, all these things. And that's what made their insights about the religion that much more profound and insightful because it wasn't one dimensional. So if we believe in tawheed, we recognize that everything is interconnected and interdependent on each other. And the source of all of that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So therefore, everything that's going on around us is an ayah from Allah. And it can be for us or against us. Now, coming to your question of self-care, absolutely self-care is extremely important. And you're right. I have observed this as well, that many Muslims do tend to neglect the um, nutrition, exercise, healthy lifestyle aspects of their existence. And we know that the body has rights upon us, right, according to Islam. Um, and we find this already in the Sunnah. I saw John Claude Van Damme, you know, this famous martial artist who did a bunch of movies in the 90s? You're probably too young, but um, he, he basically talked about this, you know, the Prophet Sallallahu advice about, you know, eating one third, drinking one third, leaving one third. Um, and he's a person who's obviously into fitness and martial arts. And there are many other examples like this, right? So we do, we know that it's not sunnah to have a huge belly, right? Um, one of the Sahaba, the Umar ibn al-Khattab, عنه, who he saw a man with a huge belly, he said, what is this? And the man said, Hada baraka minillah. This is this is blessing from Allah, you know, you know, that I got to eat so much all, all these years. And the Umar radiallahu anhu said, This is, you know, this isn't healthy, this isn't good. It makes you lazy, it makes you um, weak in energy and mind. You should not overeat and, and make your body carry around all this extra weight because your body has a frame. It has a skeleton, it has muscles, it has organs, that if you're not nourishing it and giving it its rights, how will it continue to do everything that it does for you, right? And we are totally dependent on our bodies and our physiology, you know, how our organs work. So this is a very important reminder that you're bringing up that we as Muslims have to um, make sure that we do take up you know, health and nutrition and exercise. And I think this is more common perhaps with in Muslims in Australia and Canada and, you know, the U.S. Um, but certainly in, in some of our um, other countries, uh, vast majority are Muslims. This isn't a very common aspect of the culture, right, to take care of yourself and exercise. And self-care isn't just physical. It's also emotional self-care, right? Like learning how to relax, learning how to do things that are, you know, um, re recharging for you. And I get that not everybody is in a situation where they have the luxury to go get a massage, right? Or, or go to the steam room because they may be in, living in poverty and they're just trying to survive. So, you know, may Allah make it easy on all of us. But certainly, the, you know, if we do have opportunities to take care of our health, um, and it doesn't mean you have to have a fancy gym membership. It could just be being a 15 minute walk every day and not overeating. And that's, you know, going to be a good thing. So you, um, Kareem, you mentioned about the whole idea of happiness and the idea of, you know, food providing the means of um, a healthy um, body. And that translates into being happy and how important it is. And so that reminds me of basically, um, I think someone like Hamza Yusuf delved into the whole idea of, you know, baraka and food 
and gaining that kind of baraka because it is important. Like for example, a married couple, I guess in this kind of day and age where you can go out and grab quick subway, five, 10 bucks, go home and that's like your dinner. And I think, you know, even as Muslims, we kind of take for granted the idea of cooking a good wholesome meal and getting, you know, the baraka from that because we had to kind of go out of our own way and cook a very um, kind of healthy meal. Whereas, you know, when you go out, you don't know what's being served, you know, and the kind of blessings that might be in it because it's all just processed food, right? And on top of that, it's just empty kilojoules. It's not really like unless I know those healthy eaters that go to McDonald's and get the salads, but for the most part, I think people do that because I guess salads would have been like the top meal to buy at from mcdonald's but it's the whole idea of basically boiling down to eating good wholesome um, food and we shouldn't take that for granted because i think even during the times of rasulullah you know i don't think that there would have been you know eat outs and eateries or restaurants right so everyone's just like kind of cooking their own meal and even like the small amount of food Mm -hmm. they'll be eating they'll be getting a lot of baraka from that because you obviously we saw how islam spread i think that kind of you know allah blesses in different ways like that and so i guess it's important to kind of realize the importance of food and eating a good wholesome meal and making sure you don't rely on two minute noodles to kind of fill you up and that could contribute to even something like happiness and depression right so do you think that kind of um, line of thinking is correct in the um, psychology sense Yeah, I mean, again, psychology is the study of the human being and optimal health and and happiness. And um, of course, you know, two things I'd like to say about food. The verses in the Quran, for example, chapter 2, verse 168, it talks about, um, well, I'll read the translation. Oh, humanity, eat of of this earth what is halal and tayyib. Halal and pure. So what is permissible for you, according to Islamic law, and what is tayyib, what is good and pure. And do not follow the footsteps of shaitan indeed, for he is to you an open enemy. I find that really interesting that God commands us what to eat, and then he says don't follow the footsteps of shaitan, right? So a couple of insights there um, to, to consider. Number one, it's not enough for food to just be permissible. In other words, you know, we obviously we can't eat pigs, we can't eat carnivorous animals, we can't eat an animal that was already dead. But also Allah qualifies it and says it has to be tayyib, which means something that is pure and good. You can perhaps call that organic food, right? Or wholesome food, if you will. And then don't follow the footsteps of shaitan. So Allah knows best, but perhaps even in what we eat and consume, could be a means of either worshiping Allah or disconnecting from Allah. Because we know um, through a lot of research today that what you put in your body has a huge impact in how you feel, how you think, what kind of energy you have. And if obviously you're putting a lot of dead, processed, artificial food in a living organism, there's only so much potential and well-being one would experience. Um, Food is also a type of worship. When you you know start to eat, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Alhamdulillah, Alladhi at-Amna wa Jalna Muslimin, Alhamdulillah, praise be to God who fed us and, and made us from the Muslims. Cooking for your family can be a worship with the right intention because you're you're providing nourishment and love to your family. And so when you think about it, just preparing a meal doesn't have to be a chore or a task, but it can also be a form of worship because it's a it's a type of uh, giving. That is a necessity. And the Prophet told us, you know, 
feed feed your neighbors and and spread peace. Um, one of the best ways to connect with humanity and to help your fellow human is by feeding them because everyone needs to eat regardless of their race, religion, or socioeconomic background. SubhanAllah. And you mentioned the whole idea of, you know, organic food and consuming it. And I guess people talk about this even to this day. You know, there was no such thing as the term organic food because everything was organic back then. It was kind of normal. Like you right. just, you know, they have dates or apples or bananas and stuff. And that was like rice. That was like the right. staple diet, you know, because they'll be cooking it directly from like the farm that they're kind of making all that food, right, or growing the food. And I guess in that, it's a shame that in this society – we don't look towards, you know, what happened in history. And so we rely on the kind of the way that society is heading towards, which is basically eateries and quick feeds with the boys late at night, you know what I mean? <laughs> a kebab shop, you know, right, right. like obviously like we're taking those good memories, but at the same time, we have to be conscious to not kind of do it on a consistent basis to a point where we are dependent on processed foods, right? And as you mentioned yourself, it does contribute. And even Allah, you know, mentioned in the Quran to eat good um, wholesome foods so subhanallah i guess that's a different um it could be a whole episode for just food in general and the importance of it to have that nourishment in our body no and kind of segueing from that um because it was in relation to you know happiness and depression and food um, possibly playing a role there but um because the whole kind of topic was before that when we delved into the idea of food was about depression in general and so we have this kind of situation where okay people might suffer depression through external means but even you know as muslims um there's people who for example pray five times a day do all the rituals you have a strong connection with allah and you know fast and dhikr everything they they're very um obedient to allah and some people and they're still depressed and i've even read an article on this a few times and i've you know friends um that are going through this and so it's a shame that i guess it's not talked about it's kind of take it for granted especially in the society that we live in because even i've you know friends and family they seem to kind of think that oh just read more quran and um that depression will go away and stuff but these guys are already you know if not are more practicing and they're still suffering certain things you know and so it's like how do we kind of approach it and how can we kind of assist people like that who are doing all the rituals? Sure. You know, as I said, maybe earlier in our discussion, if I recall correctly, that you have to have a harmony. So on the one hand, I don't think more religious practices or recitation of the Quran is enough for everybody. Sometimes it is like some people that alhamdulillah, that does the trick. Um, others, it, it's, it stays, even though they're doing all these things, as you mentioned. And in those situations, they likely need to do some deeper work or healing around some trauma or, or past wounds, so to speak. Because as long as that is not addressed or treated, um, you're just basically repressing or um, ignoring and neglecting a part of you that still needs that nourishment or healing or attention. And uh, y- you have to have... Uh, in my opinion, a harmony between these two things. In other cases, people they what we they do what we call uh, spiritual bypassing, and what that means is I use spirituality or religious practices to bypass addressing the real human 
um, issue or or confrontation, let's say. So, for example, if you know a guy's wife is uh, criticizing him for for not being responsible or you know falling short with something, he just says, "Hey, okay, okay, you know, I'm just gonna go pray. You know, I don't want to talk about this." Let me take it up with Allah. And he goes and he prays and he thinks he's being righteous and in, in handling the situation the way he should. But then he's actually not engaging with the human being, his wife, that is expressing her hurt or her desire. Um, and so sometimes we overcompensate through religious practice or religious nourishment or spiritual nourishment in place of doing deeper <clears throat> deeper work when it comes to human science, psychology, um, you know, emotional cleansing, etc. So, you know, to to broadly just kind of answer that, I, I think it, it's important case by case um, to recognize what exactly they need. And if you know somebody who, let's say their depression or their sadness or low moods is persistent, then it's likely because of a uh, deeper um, issue or wound that hasn't been addressed properly, or there might be even a biochemical basis for this. Um, as as we discussed earlier, sometimes people need more vitamin uh, B12, for example, or their dopamine and serotonin levels, the threshold of release is much less than the average person, right? So they might need actual medication. Um, now, if somebody takes medication, uh, my philosophy on that is medication is something to help you uh, cope for the time being or to stabilize you for the time being. But if you're not doing the deeper healing parallel to that, then what ends up happening is you also have, like, for example, in the United States, you have a lot of people who are over-medicated. They never do the deeper work and they end up taking, you know, um, these types of medications for 10, 20, 30 years or the rest of their life because they never actually did the deeper healing. So would you say the importance is to basically be aware of your situation and kind of assess the deeper issues that you might be going through and addressing it full on. And that would be the key to basically seeking that kind of, or getting out of the kind of depression that they're suffering. Well, the, th the, the difficult thing is, is most people aren't aware that they might have depression or PTSD or whatever, right? So I don't think that's an easy thing for each individual to be aware of. But earlier you're asking, you know, what, what do we, how do we help people that are in those situations? Like we see them pray or read a lot of Quran, but they're very depressed. So those types of individuals that let's say you observe, um, you counsel them and advise them to, to see somebody who specializes in that thing. Um, when it comes to individual responsibility, of course, you know, we do have to ask ourselves, as it is an Islamic duty, to have that reflection and to think more deeply on our matters, our lives, and, and you know, um, what aspects of ourselves needs to be improved or purified. And I think that if somebody has that type of reflection, albeit it's not easy for everyone to do that, um, then sometimes it, it does cause people to go, you know what, I am going to go online or I'm going to ask around and see if there's somebody I can uh, speak to about this particular issue. Um, and so, of course, there's always an individual responsibility, but we also as a community have to help each other out, especially if we see something that we know is not uh, part of a person's normal pattern of, of their behavior or personality. We need to also reflect and ask those deeper questions about how can I help this individual or support them. Um, sometimes it just has to do, do with somebody wants to talk. Somebody wants to, I mean, humans carry a lot of stuff on a daily basis, and there's a lot of things we keep to ourselves. And 
sometimes just doing that so much um, creates this sense of feeling stuck or, or drained, if you will. And I'll tell you that uh, a lot of people, when I speak to them, they say, you know, just being able to talk about this, something I haven't said to anybody in 10 or 20 years, just being able to release that gives me so much relief. And I'm like, yeah, because what's beautiful about the word nafsun in Arabic, self, it's connected to other, you know, you take that same root word in, in its different forms. It means self. It means something that's precious. It also means breath or breathing. And it also means to release or to relieve oneself. In other words, like venting, you know, when you say, oh, bro, I just need to vent. I need to let it out, right? So talking about it and sharing that um, in a safe space with somebody you trust and someone who can support you, either personal or, or professional, that in and of itself offers a lot of relief for for our fellow humans. That even reminds me, you know, a lot of people talk about um, neuroscientists, for example, they say, you know, if you're really stressed, go just go out for a walk or do an exercise and the, um, that kind of stress that you're suffering, it, it kind of leaves you and um because of the physical activity i would do, might be doing so i guess it does reflect the whole idea of being aware about your situation knowing how to address those it's not necessarily something that you know the quran for example or you know allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can you know directly fix it's like you have to take that initiative to do it and then i guess because you're doing that then allah will allow you to kind of ease your suffering right and and think about it from a, a scientific standpoint of of what we know about energy Right, energy can um, neither be created nor destroyed. It can only be transferred from one form to another. Now, is the human being full of energy? True or false? True. Absolutely, we're full of you know magnetic energy, uh, biochemical. There's heat. There's electricity. All of these things exist within us. So, of course, you know, going for a walk, for example, or breathing, or praying, or going to talk to somebody about it, painting, whatever your coping mechanisms are, those things help because what you're doing is you're transferring the energy from it being lodged and stuck inside you, and you're objectifying it or transferring it outside of you or through the body, like through a physical activity. This is why many of us feel a lot better when we move, when we exercise, when we walk, when we breathe, when we stretch, when we do salah, and so on and so forth. So this is why often um, these types of techniques are suggested uh, to heal or, or to relieve yourself and release uh, or emit, if you will, all of this um, lodged energy that if it doesn't come out, um, it's going to impact us because you can't just destroy it by ignoring it. It's what we call repression. Oh, I just keep it in. I don't think about it. Once in a while, it triggers and comes back, but then I shove it back down, deep down inside my psyche and unconscious, and I just go about my merry day. We, that doesn't actually work. It doesn't have long-term sustainability. Eventually, you will crash or explode or fall apart, so to speak. We are talking about basically having that relief, and that kind of relates to the next question that I wanted to ask you. Um, in terms of modern psychology, um, from my kind of understanding, the whole idea of morale or morality at times seemed to go out the window. And I guess it's that absence of uh, moral accountability. So, for example, if you're, you know, if, uh, from, for example, a non-Muslim kind of seeking happiness, they might do it through other means that we as Muslims, you know, say is haram, for example, you know, um, zina or drinking, you know. And I feel like in... Uh, from a psychological kind of standpoint, as long as they're happy, it 
doesn't matter because that's it's about you know making yourself feel good and this that and i guess there's an absence of um morality and do you feel like it's basically the whole idea of you know a happy sinner and i guess the happy sinner is basically championed as a success story in the uh in secular psychology framework so do you feel like that's the route that's kind of being laid within modern psychology well Again, I can't speak for all, you know, schools of thought in modern psychology, um, but, you know, I do notice that, look, the bottom line is this, if our societies, especially in the West, um, which are very individual, they're, it's all about individualism, it's individual centric, right? And now we're seeing more and more that my subjective space or my you know personal preference of what makes me feel good or happy that equals happiness and that's going to be different for everybody now sure there is you know truth to that but what happens now when there's no standard to check um what we identify as making us happy like you said so for instance you could have you know um, and again, speaking from a Muslim context, if make what makes me happy is to be able to sleep with all the women I want and go to the club every Friday night, right? That could genuinely make a person happy. But from an Islamic perspective, your nafs or your selfhood is stained and diseased with attachments um, to certain desires which are actually oppressive and darkening on your soul. And humans can adapt to anything. That's that's the, why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, tells us to be careful about what we do. And, and if we experience evil, it's from ourselves. And if it's good, it's from Allah. Because anytime we do something good, it's actually aligned with what we call the divine reality or the divine pattern. Okay. So the Islam is not about whatever makes you happy, which is exactly what everyone's talking about these days. You know, oh, if it makes you happy, you know, if you identify with um, this act or this thing or that, even though it goes against what we would consider objectivity in science. So for instance, like this whole gender fluidity phenomena, like I can identify as a woman and people will have to start accommodating and accepting that and whatever pronouns I want to use. And they will say, well, look, Kareem, if it makes you happy, it makes you happy. We support that, right? Even though if I identified as an 85-year-old, you know, uh, Asian woman, no, everyone would be like, you know, that's kind of strange, but and it's not really objective. But uh, hey, if subjectively it makes you happy, then we support that. So th there, is, there is this issue where um, if you, there's no standard or... A, from our perspective, a divine manual that helps us check what exactly is good about what makes me happy and what isn't. And we try to align our desires of happiness and fulfillment to the sunnah and, and the Quran. That's when we would consider somebody healthy or happy from an Islamic psychological perspective, because you're now aligned with what Allah and his messenger brought. And this is exactly what the Prophet said in the sunnah. He said, you know, a sign of faith is when you're, 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 your fitra or your, excuse me, your personality, not your fitra, your personality is aligned to what I have brought. In other words, you naturally enjoy or are inclined to the way of the Prophet, right? So you'd rather drink milk than wine. You would rather eat uh, just to your fill rather than overeat. You would, um, you find joy in helping others, not just always serving 
um, yourself, etc. This is a sign of health and happiness, according to my understanding, at least, of, of Islamic psychology. Because at the same time, we kind of experience, um, you know, being in the West. However, do you feel like in the kind of modern psych- psychology field or even the psychology we may study at university, do you feel like we're heading towards a direction where it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, the majority, but there might be, you know, a few um, psychologists or even um, big organizations that kind of deal with the whole um, field of psychology. Do you feel like because they look at, you know, when they study the brain, they look at it from such a kind of materialistic point of view that we're heading towards a direction where morality is very hard to define? Well, I mean, how do you, what do you mean by morality exactly? So the morality of, you know, the kind of Islamic conception that, yes, there's certain things that define being good and bad. It doesn't have to necessarily be through the Islamic lens, but there has to be a sense of, you know, okay, this, we know, like, this isn't good and this isn't bad, but because it's really hard to define what's good and bad through just purely materialistic point of view, especially when you're, um, you know, doing, uh, studying the brain, for example, do you feel like, those are the kind of conversations that are happening within the psychological kind of field where they're not sure about, okay, because I'm studying the brain and I can't really seem to define what's exactly good and bad and the frameworks that might define morality, basically. Well, I'm speaking more from a kind of philosophical paradigm. So Western psychology and the associations that be, like the American Psychological Association or Psychiatric Association, I'm sure there's one in Australia and and something similar, they're coming from a philosophical paradigm which defines what it means to be human, what is healthy, what is unhealthy, what is right, what is wrong, what is happy, or there's no, you know, it's all relative too, which you find. It's like, well, if this married couple wants to have an open relationship and they're in agreement to both of them sleeping with other people, yet they stay married and that's what makes them happy and fulfilled. You know, Western psychology has space and room for that. Um, In an Islamic psychological setting, obviously not, because even though that might make you happy or fulfilled, it's still considered morally wrong because Islamic law dictates that that's that's an unacceptable setup. You follow, so of course you're going to see um, these types of things happening in a s- school of thought of psychology that has a different paradigm. But you'll also, of course, find similarities with Islamic psychology too. Like uh, like you don't go out of your way to hurt people, right? And often you say that you hear that, like oh, as long as you know you don't hurt anybody and it makes you happy, go for it, kind of thing, right? But we also forget that one of the people we can always hurt is ourselves. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches us this, right? That sometimes what you think is good for you, it's actually not. And sometimes what you don't like to do or you dislike, it's actually really good for you. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us that sometimes what feels good isn't always good. And so this is not necessarily a principle that um, often you find in uh, the morality, if you will, uh, of psychology in in the West, generally speaking. Okay. Um before you kind of um, compared the idea of the nafs with the, um, with happiness, I want to kind of break down the whole concept of happiness. Um, if me personally going through life, even if I wasn't kind of like a practicing Muslim, you know, I would define happiness to be that um, temporary happiness that is like a spark, um, regardless you do if you do good or bad. Like 
for example, I don't know, playing football and scoring a really hectic um, header. Or there is a other kind of concept of happiness, you know, being in the mode of, you know, lust, for example, you know, getting that girl we've been hitting on or something along those lines. And there's also the sort of long-term contentment that people seek in regards to being happy with their life overall on an overall day-to-day basis. So, but as a Muslim, uh, which means you and a kind of every other practicing Muslim defined to be true happiness is also tasting the sweetness of Iman, you know, through worshipping Allah, especially, you know, in situations such as, you know, prostrating in prayer, um, a kind of happiness mm-hmm. that, you know, can't really be achieved by doing haram or even kind of non-Muslims seem to not experience. So do you feel like, um, would you yourself um, classify, so I've defined kind of the categories of happiness, would you yourself classify happiness into these categories from a kind of um, psychological um, point of view? And um, what would you um, define to be true happiness? Sure. Um, So first off, I don't believe, I think it's a improper position to start off with when we say, um, like a lot of people, this is a common theme, like I just want to be happy or I want to be happy all the time. Uh, I don't think you're supposed to be happy all the time. Do you? Do you believe you're supposed to be happy all the time? Well, I guess we would like to be, but it doesn't happen. That's not the reality. Right. It's not the reality now, but is that a bad thing if you're not happy all the time, right? And and by happiness, I'm talking about a higher state of satisfaction or, you know, um, well-being, right? Because it's, it's considered like, oh, I'm really happy. I'm getting married versus like, you know, oh, I'm really, um, you know, happy because my, my favorite show is on. You know, it's like they're, they're t- even though we use the word happy in both circumstances, one of, of course, has a higher... Uh, weight or, or bigger weight than the other one. So happiness, I think, generally just means what we're pleased with, what gives us pleasure, satisfaction, gives us joy, etc. And so can somebody be happy all the time? Probably not. And I don't think that's the goal. Um, but yes, we can have long streaks or the vast majority of our days, inshallah, are, you know, we're either content or we feel good or we're satisfied. We're not, you know, complaining and negative and sad and down. I mean, we're going to have the whole spectrum of emotions as human beings, right? That's why we're going to experience sadness and anger and joy and contemplation and, you know, skepticism. And there's going to be all kinds of feelings and moods that we have throughout our lives. And so to try to just have one all the time, I think is already uh, the wrong premise to start with. Now, ultimately, we want to be happy most of the time or more so than not. But again, that has many layers or degrees. Like right now, I'm pretty satisfied and content on my Saturday. Um, I wouldn't say I'm so happy right now. Like I'm just, you know, beaming with with fruity flavor and, and citrusy, uh, you know, bursting flavor, right? But that doesn't mean I'm sad or depressed right now either, you know? Um, and so... That's the first thing is it's not about being happy all the time. It's about um, making sure that the vast majority of your experiences are healthy and positive um, moods, if you will. And that includes happiness and the degrees of happiness. But you can say, I feel at peace, right? Um, For example, does that mean you're not happy or you're depressed? No, not necessarily. It just means you're at peace, which is also a state that you would say is positive 
um, or a state that is not harmful or, or causing damage to one's um, mind or heart or, or body, so to speak. So I think that uh, as mu'mineen, as Muslims, as believers, inshallah, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, tells us or, or advises us to find, um, we will find joy and um, success when we are aligned with, you know, his reality, Azza wa Jal. And that doesn't mean you're not going to have hardships along the way. That doesn't mean there's going to be some days where you're like, meh, not really feeling so hot about work or <laughs> doing this podcast, right? But you're you're gonna you you still do it, and you know maybe you feel better by the end of the day. I mean, how many times have you woken up feeling meh, but then by the end of the day you're like feeling pumped and energized and feeling good, and vice versa. So even within the day, we have a spectrum of you know moods and moments, if you will. Um, so I think that we have to kind of think about it more holistically and recognize the all the colors of emotions and moods is part of the greater painting. And we shouldn't just want everything to be yellow, for example, or just shades of yellow, which we would say is happiness, for example. Do you feel like even, you know, being a kind of Muslim psychologist and if people come to you, you know, talking about kind of achieving that contentment, do you feel like one of the ways you kind of approach it is to for them to kind of taste the sweetness of iman and prayer and worship? And that could be one of those ways to kind of facilitate um, happiness. Absolutely. I, I try to make as part of all my uh, work with people is we always have to put first things first. We have to center ourselves in the divine relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because without Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in our lives, our sense of fulfillment and purpose and tranquility and joy and attachment to the right things, that's that's going to suffer if, if we don't have that relationship with Allah firm. And many people, including myself, have, I think, experienced firsthand that when you are closer to God or God is on your mind and heart, and Allah says in Surah Al-Baqarah, Remember me and I'll remember you and be grateful to me and don't be those who cover up or deny the blessings. And so this, of course, is a, is a reminder for us in the Quran as well as many others that this sense of happiness and joy is when you feel that connectivity to uh, the divine and you are, as a human being, in your proper place because you recognize who you are in relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this, of course, is a magical, you know, joyful experience, in my opinion. And so certainly this is a very important component to the work I do with with the people that I serve. Um, and I always like to start, you know, any process I have with people and talk about that and say, tell me more about your relationship with Allah. Tell me about your relationship to Islam. What's What are some of your pain points about Islam? Like certain things that, you know, you don't understand or you're confused or you're doubt. Um, sometimes there's trauma from like Islamic Sunday school. You know, I think everybody has a story or two about that. If not, alhamdulillah, good for you. But I mean, some people literally like had a lot of negative associations with the religion and people who always talked about God and the Quran. And they associate all that with negativity and pain and sadness um, or inadequacy because they were abused, let's say, at their Islamic school or they witnessed things that were very harmful and disgusting. Um, and yet these are the same people with beards and hijabs and, and caps on and preaching the Quran. So everybody's experience is going to have, I think, several layers to it that has to be explored. Um, but I, I hope I answered your question. 
Yeah, like that even reminds me of not just in um, psychology or Muslim psychologists, um, even in because we did an episode um, with the marriage counselor and he mentioned that even before the couples kind of sat down to discuss, you know, what's wrong, he first addresses like first thing, how's your relationship with Allah, you know, and that just basically gives away like why they're having issues because, you know, if you're not doing for the sake of Allah, there have to be aspects such as humility, um, you know, understanding for the spouse, because once you realize you're doing it for Allah, then, you know, Allah commands, you know, to understand your spouse and, you know, their spouse has um, rights and responsibilities that actually solves a lot of the issues that, you know, they come to the um, marriage counselor to address. And so not only just for marriage counseling, but even for entrepreneurship, for example, it's really a big thing amongst Muslim entrepreneurs. Um, I, I was watching somewhere where one of the guys, he's like a mentor for all the people. He's like, I make sure I tell all my um, people that I coach that you have to get up for tahajjud, you have to pray fajr at the mosque because you have to realize first, correct your intentions. And once you do it for the sake of Allah, you know, um, inshallah, like we just gain the rewards, even though we may not reach our um, goal that we've kind of set. So I guess the whole kind of foundation is to realize um, why you're doing it and your intention. And we should do our best to always kind of purify intentions and see if we're truly doing for the sake of Allah and having a strong relationship Allah with Allah, regardless of what kind of profession or kind of field of study that we're in. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. SubhanAllah, even before you mentioned about basically the, how the starting point should be realizing the spectrum of emotions and not just saying that, okay, we should solely focus or fixate on happiness because it's not ideal or realistic and you can't really experience happiness every second of your day. And that kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, Hamza Yusuf talk. He was like really emotional, didn't it? It was just like the dunya will only break your heart. And if you really want peace in the world, then you're in the wrong place, buddy, or something like that. And I feel like, <laughs> subhanAllah, and he, I think he said a small story that I think he was in um, Saudi Arabia or something, and he was with a driver, and the driver was kind of um, letting out his emotions and being like, you know, I'm struggling because I'm trying to send money back to um, back to my country that I'm from and got to help my family out, and it's a struggle, this, that, and, you know, I've lost hope. And then he's... And then Hamza Yusuf's like, just looks at him and is like, you know, the deen's all about hope, you know, Islam's all about hope, you know. Um, SubhanAllah, I guess um, that's kind of the way we have to view the world that we're in because at the end of the day, it's, all, um, it's just temporal in nature, right? Correct. Everything is transitory. Um, nothing is permanent. And... Um, you know, as soon as you lose hope in Allah or think negatively about everything, um, it, that's when we've really lost and become unhappy for real, right? But I mean, I can say even from a personal experience, there were so many times in my life where, you know, you're just in such a different place, a uh, difficult place. Um, you didn't know how it was ever going to get better, how you're going to be able to get through this. And subhanAllah, you do get through it. Um, and the more I think you go through these types of experiences, you learn and recognize that even though you're in a hardship or stuck in a rut doesn't mean that's permanent either, right? Because impermanence is not just with, you know, nothing stays happy or amazing all the time, every moment. And it's also true for the opposite. Nothing stays horrible and difficult every, all the time either, you know, and the, 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 
the plug here is to remember that in your times of difficulty, it's not about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, picking on you, right? But rather it's a way to lift you up and make you recenter or reorient to what matters. And I've seen this happen over and over again. Like a family, you know, you know, one of their kids goes really astray or gets into some trouble and all of a sudden it makes the whole family stop and recalibrate um, what are their priorities? And it's like, wow, it, this happened because all of us have been neglectful of our relationship to Allah or our relationship to our kids or whatever it is. And so this sometimes brings a lot of barakah and happiness as a result because it's a way to redirect and recalibrate us to what truly matters. And if we don't, if we just get caught up in that, caught up in just chasing the dunya, as they say, um, then you will, you're gonna. It's a sign that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala still loves and cares for you when He makes you. He makes the whole universe put you in a situation where you have to stop and go. What am I doing with myself? Where am I going? What am I prioritizing? Why did this happen to me? What do I have to change? This is a gift when you think about it. And the more you go through that, the more the wiser you become, and the more equipped you become with lessons and knowledge that will also reduce. Inshallah, um, the future uh, mistakes or, or hardships like that to happen, uh, especially from from what we've caused from our own hands, right? And that's why people that Inshallah, as they get older and wiser, um, you don't see them getting into all this crazy trouble. Like how many forty five year old married men, for example, do you know who just keep getting you know DUIs, driving while drunk, right? Uh, and you know they're they keep going to prison every you know couple of months because they just haven't gotten over this. I mean, sure, it happens, but it's it less likely happens with people that have gone through more of life than let's say younger people who still don't have all those lessons and and uh, experiences um, as part of their repository of personal wisdom. Subhanallah, I think that's a kind of beautiful way to kind of you know. Um, in the whole episode my pleasure brother thank you for having me and uh, keep up the good work that you guys are doing over in australia and everywhere and um i'll be sure to um look out for this episode and again anybody who's listening if you heard any mistakes or things of confusion it's from myself and if you benefited it's from allah subhanahu wa ta'ala i'm just a means for for what allah wants you to learn so thanks again for your patience and and giving me the opportunity no worries. Like also, you know, we're in tune with what you do out in, you know, California and America. And especially, you know, because I first heard you on um, the Mamam Looks and then kept up to date with your stuff. So I feel like, inshallah, like, may Allah bless, you know, the works we're trying to do and hopefully correct our intentions, inshallah, because I think it is really important to have those conversations online. And it was something that I was pondering because I had a, um, I was at a wedding last night. So, and I was with my, um, my usual co-host mm -hmm. was having a talk and there was other people kind of talking about the podcast and stuff. And I guess people aren't kind of exposed to these conversations at, on a regular basis. And that was one of the reasons why me and um, Josh kind of started the podcast in the first place. Cause it's like, inshallah, you know, people can benefit from it. Cause I guess when you're with certain cliques and friend circles, you only tend to kind of talk about certain things. Whereas these kind of conversations are interesting for, you know, hopefully people can you know benefit from in different ways in their life. Absolutely. Absolutely. May Allah bless you and, and your companions of the cave. And, uh, <laughs> and may Allah give us tawfiq, inshallah. Ameen. Ameen. Kareem Sirajuddin here. Thank you for tuning in. 
Please visit NurHuman.com to learn more about how I provide personal, spiritual, and relationship counsel. Please generously help sponsor the show to keep on going at Patreon.com slash Coffee with Kareem. That's Patreon.com slash Coffee with Kareem.